episode 140 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. This episode is just unreal. It is the stories of Kerry McCauley, which he has written a book called Fairy Pilot, but it's all of his stories that he has had that has led to his crazy career of being a fairy pilot. He has had a TV show on the Discovery Channel. He has had so many just crazy things happen and so many stories to tell. And a lot of times when your flight instructor or someone or your whoever you're flying with is telling you, hey, don't do that. Carrie has probably done that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wild story. I was so honored to talk to him. He reached out to me a couple weeks ago. We got him set up with the podcast. And this is just a story that everyone needs to hear. Go buy his book if you want to at the end of this. Like I said, it's called Fairy Pilot. And it's by Carrie McCauley. You will not be disappointed whatsoever. Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check out our Instagram at pilotthepilot.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can buy some swag. We have some sweet hats. You can check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot. Other than that, I don't want to keep you guys very long. I want to go straight into Carrie's story. It is unreal. So without any further ado, here's Carrie McCauley. Harry, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, reading a little bit about you, and I've seen Dangerous Flights uh, a couple episodes. I haven't seen them all, but uh, I was excited to have you reach out and uh, want to come on the podcast. Well, thanks. Yeah, perfect. So I always start with a, a similar question. I always kind of want to understand the why, the why behind you got in aviation, the the why behind becoming a pilot. So what was it for you? What was the original inspiration for you to become a pilot? Well, uh, my uncle, Carrie McCauley, who I'm named after, was a Navy carrier pilot who flew S2 trackers. And growing up, he was always kind of my hero, always had Uncle Carrie who did really cool stuff and flew planes all over the world and off aircraft carriers. And so I always kind of wanted to be like him, you know, like, like a lot of kids grew up with model airplanes, World War II fighters, he had a big swirling dog fight in the ceiling of my bedroom and just uh, always knew I always wanted to be a pilot. That's cool. Uh, so always knew you want to be a pilot. When did that actually kind of transfer into you becoming a pilot? When was uh, your first ride? Kind of when did you start hanging around the airport? When did all that happen? Well, my first ride was with a friend of my father's who had a little, probably a 152 back when I was maybe eight or nine. I still remember the flight and uh, that kind of got me hooked. Then growing up, my best friend, Lee, he's uh, his family owned a flight school at Anoka County Airport, just north of Minneapolis. And we would ride our, ride our 10 speeds down there and go play in their simulator and hang around the airport and do fun stuff. And, uh, when both of us turned 18, we decided to join the Army, become Army Huey crew chiefs. And that was our first uh, foray into aviation. So that was pretty fun. Good early start there. Yeah, definitely. What Was it always the Army, or did you ever think about Navy, Air Force, anything like that? You know, I thought about Navy and Air Force. Uh, you know, I really always assumed I would become an Air Force pilot or something, but 
you know, the army would take you at 17 in between their junior and senior year of high school. And, you know, young kids, we just get a wild hair and went down and signed up, went to basic training while I was still in high school. So what was that like? It just kind of, it was awesome. I loved it. You know, I was in great shape. I was in track and soccer and I skied a lot. So the running was, and all the physical activity was a, really a piece of cake and, and who doesn't like shooting machine guns and throwing hand grenades while you're still in high school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's very true. I mean, that'd be kind of fun as well. Uh, yeah. I guess the people yelling at you would be the hard part, probably. You know, I, I like that. Actually, I love the discipline and those drill sergeants were hilarious. Oh my God, those guys were funny. I mean, they try to get you to laugh so you can make you do push-ups and stuff, but uh, I enjoyed it. I had a good time basic training. That's awesome. So you joined at 17 and did you join with the idea of you becoming, uh, uh, was it the Huey crew chief that you said, or was it kind of like you joined and they put you wherever they need you? You know, it was the dumbest thing. We just went to the nearest national guard recruiting office, which happened to be an artillery unit. So all of a sudden I was in artillery and we were, Lee and I were there for, I don't know, six months. And we go, this is Dumb. Why are we in artillery? Why not aviate? I think we saw a helicopter flying over. So we immediately, before we went to our our specialist training, we transferred to the aviation unit out of St. Paul. And right after high school, I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama for Huey Crew Chief School and love that. When you were when you kind of had the idea of you wanted to be a pilot. Did you think of it as uh, just an airline pilot? Was it, uh, I know your career's kind of wandered off from being an airline pilot, more specifically a ferry pilot, but did you have kind of grand dreams of, of flying big planes, flying for the airlines, or were you just, I just want to fly. I think it's so cool and fun. doesn't matter if it's a helicopter, a glider, a plane, multi-engine, whatever it is, I just want to fly it. You know, I, I never had any designs to go airlines. I always wanted military and... But, you know, getting into the Army kind of threw me off track. I, I loved the Army. I loved the infantry stuff. I was a winter survival instructor. Um, really got into doing that. But and before I went to flight school, Army flight school, before I decided to go do that, I met another crew chief whose father owned the ferry company that I worked for. And when he told me about ferry flying, I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I think I'd rather do that. Yeah. What was it about fairy flying that kind of caught your interest? Well, it's the romance and adventure of flying small planes all over the world. You know, when I first talked to him, he said he just, I hadn't seen him for a month or so. And he's, what you been up to? He said, oh, I just got back from Africa. I'm like, what? Africa? You know, he, and he told me about ferrying a small plane down to South Africa. And I was like, that sounded like the coolest thing in the world. And I, right then and there, I decided that's what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, I didn't have a pilot's license at the time, so that's... <laughs> Small problem. Yeah. Was, Small problem. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> so I started taking flying lessons and working toward that goal. I knew it was going to be a long road. You know, get a, He said he needed about 1,500 hours to even be considered, and seeing I had zero, that would seem like a... A long way off, but you know, you just got to get started. Yeah, it seems like fifteen hundred hours is a magical number for for everyone. Airlines, uh, ferry, for insurance, for whatever it is. Um, looking at so your decision, uh, you're in the army. When you first joined the army, were you thinking a full career in the army? You know, you're going to work your way up, you're going to retire, uh, get that military pension and everything like that. Were you put with a decision to stop the army or retire early or quit the army to go fully in on the ferry flying, or were you able to do both? 
Well, I was planning on originally planning on full time active duty, and I was going to go to you know ROTC, become an officer, fly helicopters, and then I started talking to some of the pilots in our in our unit, and they realized. You know, told me, well, basically, you fly for three years as an officer, and then you stop flying, and then you mostly are doing a desk job. So that didn't sound too appealing. I didn't really have any interest in that. And um, you know, along the way, when I got hired to be a ferry pilot, that I started missing a lot of drills and really having fun flying around the world. And that's when I decided to put my army career on hold. I'd also become a professional skydiver at the time, and started a skydiving business and that's uh that was how ha- i was having a lot of fun doing that too so sounds like you like to do all the things is that correct <laughs> i do like to do all the things yeah <laughs> that's funny i mean that's not a bad thing to do it definitely keeps you busy and probably life entertaining yep for sure for sure when you say that you were missing drills was that kind of i feel like missing drills would be uh they'd be highly frowned upon were they putting pressure on you to choose or to to figure out like hey man are you all in or you want to like you can't really put both feet in each basket no, actually, they were pretty cool about it, you know, because it's being an aviation unit when I, you know, would call up my command officer, say, I can't make drill this weekend. I'm in Africa and uh, <laughs> flying a plane. like, they all thought that was the coolest job in the world, too. I go, I know, right? But, you know, that, that was right when I was starting. And I really didn't plan on leaving the Army permanently. I thought I was just going to take a short break to really get the fly, the ferry flying going and maybe get it out of my system. You know, at that point, I was thinking maybe airlines, who knows? And, you know, the skydiving thing was really starting to take off. So it was supposed to be just a short break. And unfortunately, I never went back. And it's, that was, that's a bummer because I really, really enjoyed the Army. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about the skydiving thing a little bit. Was it just a, a local airport? You started on, bought a plane, had people jump out? Or what did it look like? You said it was taking off? Well, yeah. Um, you know, I started... Started skydiving just on a whim. A friend of mine, new instructor, said you come out and try that. And I'd just gone to Army Air Assault School, which is rappelling out of helicopters. So I figured, oh, I might as well take the next step. And it was this ratty little place in the middle of a farm field in Wisconsin. And as soon as I jumped out of the plane the first time, I was hooked. But back in those days, nobody really made a living skydiving. Tandem skydiving had just been invented and really wasn't going anywhere yet. But after a few years, it started to take off. And I went from one one drop zone to another and then drop zone in Baldwin, Wisconsin, just east of Minneapolis, uh, came up for sale. And I decided to uh, see if I could buy that and turn it into a living. Nice. When you say tandem skydiving was just coming or just like kind of being a thing, would you, your, your first jump, would you just go by yourself? Yeah. Like my first jump was a static line jump, which is real similar to the military style where you okay. can jump out at 3000 feet and the chute opens automatically because it's attached to a line to the plane. That's right. typically how people learned back then. I was going to say, I just have visions of like, all right, we're at 20,000 feet, you know, pull this. If this doesn't work, pull that. Uh, you can kind of steer. Good luck. See you. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's, well, I guess you kind of ha- you're kind of faced with a decision where you have to figure it out or else bad things will happen. Right. So yep. <laughs> true fight or flight situation. Exactly. So you started this business. Um, did you kind of wander away from the, the ferry flying idea where you kind of just like, well, this is kind of lucrative or in your mind, we're like, nope, ferry pilot, or I can do both. Well, the ferry flying business had started to slow down a little bit. And along the way, I'd gotten married, had a couple of kids and 
really had to take a look at the ferry flying as a as a career and even doing it at all because it's extremely dangerous. You know, he's flying a small single engine airplane over the North Atlantic, and uh, you know, one little thing that engine goes wrong and you're swimming. So I decided to uh, take a break when the in, from ferry flying for a little bit while my kids were young and. And uh, the skydiving business was going pretty, you know, pretty big. Okay. Know. So let's go back a little bit then to, to kind of just beginning of the fairy idea. Uh, we talked about just like how it just really intrigued you. What, um, what was your initial exposure to it? I know it was just your one buddy saying, hey, this is what we do. Like we ferry this. But was there anything specific about it that was just like, all right, I have to do this. I know you're flying small planes all over the world, but was it the freedom of you making these choices, the flight plans, uh, the challenge of it, the the adrenaline rush? Uh, what was kind of the main exposure that kind of really got you in? You know, pretty much all of the above. Um, it was the freedom. And I've always been an explorer and I've always been kind of a, a loner, a soloist, you know, like going skiing or camping or hunting. I, I like being out by myself and making my own decisions. And when I started getting into the aviation community, you know, hearing about the airline pilot thing where you, you're, you know, kind of part of a, you know, I won't say handheld team, but, you know, a lot, a lot of decisions are made for you. And in the ferry flying, they're like, here you go, fly this plane to Singapore. <laughs> okay. Yeah, figure it out. We need it by Tuesday. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So that appealed to me. Yeah. Um, what kind of explain someone listening right now, maybe they're younger, go ahead and explain the ferry process. Like why is there a need for a ferry pilot? What is the situation look like? Is it uh, someone buying a plane that they liked in Australia? Is it a multitude, multiple uh, kind of events that could lead to you being ferrying? What's kind of, kind of give a quick little gist of what a ferry pilot does. Well, basically a ferry pilot delivers airplanes around the world well or around the country but around the world you know if somebody wants to buy a plane and either it's a new plane out of the sears factory in duluth or it's a used plane in oklahoma and they happen to live in australia or russia somebody's got to get it there and seeing there's a couple of big oceans in the way it's usually a little too dangerous or intimidating for most pilots so they got to find somebody stupid enough to fly it over the ocean that's <laughs> That's kind of where I come in. <laughs> it's a great way to sell it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a great way to go to your wife, be like, hey, so this guy's too scared to do this. And he said he wanted something stupid enough to do it. So I did a volunteer. <laughs> it was like, cool. You know, basically that's my job in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, what did the process look like when you started? Did you just get thrown in? Is it like, well, you can fly any, technically you can fly any single engine airplane. So just go take it up and trial by error. Or was it, uh, you start with a 172, you get comfortable with 172 and then you do some training in other planes or kind of what is the whole process look like when you get a call, uh, say you 182 or you've never flown that plane before. What does that look like? Well, I pretty much got thrown right into it. Um, I, the company I got hired on was called Orient Air, and they had a they had a pilot actually go down, and so they had a spot open and hired me. And my my training was sitting in the owner's office one day, copying down his little notebook that had all the phone numbers and things for every airport around the world, and then him and another ferry pilot sat and just told me stories about ferry flying for that afternoon. And then they put me on a trip. Um, my first trip was with a Beach Duchess, a little light twin, 
And I was with the owner who was in his, another plane. And we were going, I was taking that Duchess from St. Paul to Lisbon, Portugal. And I was going to fly with him until we dropped that plane off. And then he had a, a, a Turbine 206 that was going to Zurich. Wow. So, so that's definitely a trial by or uh, thrown into the fire right there. <laughs> pretty much. At least they gave you a multi-engine plane and not like a, a tiny little single engine. You're like, oh, we need this uh, Piper Arrow or this Tomahawk to go over to Lisbon. You're like, oh, no thanks. Well, I kind of needed to give me a twin to start with because back in those days, the Canadian government wouldn't, government wouldn't allow you to fly a single engine over the ocean unless you had a single engine waiver. And because they were having to spend too much money searching for pilots who went down. And so they were trying to <laughs> cut their costs a bit. And so you could do a, you could do a multi-engine without a waiver, but a single engine needed a waiver and you had to go take a test and they would prove you knew what you're doing and get some experience. So giving me a twin actually was just more expedient. Gotcha. So it wasn't necessarily for your own sake of mind. It's because they physically couldn't put you in a smaller plane. <laughs> Legally, they, could, they wouldn't let me. So, yeah. That's so funny. That is the most aviation story I've ever heard in my life. It's like, well, we can't do this, but we're still want you. you know? <laughs> That's so yeah. funny. Uh, what was that like? What was your first trip like? Was it everything you expected? Was it terrifying? Uh, did you feel prepared or is this something that you really can't prepare for? You know, I really had no idea how I was going to feel once I was sitting at the end of the runway in St. John's, Newfoundland, about to take off over the ocean. I mean, you just the, the thought of it, it was a, it was supposed to be about a 10-hour trip and um, about eight hours, I suppose. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it or not. You know, the, the boss had told me there had been a lot of pilots who got there and lost their nerve and literally left the planes on the ramp and airlined home saying, sorry, couldn't do it. And uh, time came for me to go. They, they can't, the Canadian Oceanic Control separates you, you know, each plane 15 minutes apart. So my boss took off first, and I was sitting there by myself. And, you know, I could have come up with any excuse in the book. The plane's broke, uh, weather doesn't look good, whatever, and just turned around. But I was anxious. I, I really wanted to get going. And once I headed out over the ocean, and it got the VOR went off after a hundred miles or so it got pretty real because back then we didn't have GPS either. This is a old school. Oh my gosh. See, it's funny. Cause now I think of a ferry pilot and you think like, well, they've got to have four flight or something, right? It's like, how can you fly without four flight? But it's like back then you had nothing. Or did you, did you have a sextant looking up at the stars trying to figure out where you were? Like, what were you using mainly? Well, basically, and it's funny you mentioned Sexton. I met an old German pilot that was actually in the Luftwaffe back in World War II. who tried to give me some some calculations where you could determine your latitude by the sun and the watch, but I could never understand him. But uh, no, we would get a, a, a winds of law forecast from the Canadian Weather Service and sit down before we left with our route and get out the old E6B and just do the old school plotting time and distance and heading and all the way down to the Azores. That's where we were going the first time back then. We'd go down to the Azores a lot. It's the islands off the coast of Portugal. But yeah, you're going to be about six hours of nothing but uh, your compass. What was the number one thing you were worried about most on your first trip? Was it, uh, what happens if I lose an engine, run out of fuel? What happens if I get off track? What was the one thing that was scaring you the most? I think it was the navigation. Uh, I, I think I had... Probably a two-hour reserve of fuel, and which 
Seems like a lot when you're over the United States, but when you've got to hit a hit an island in the middle of the Atlantic, two hours seems to be a little thin. So I was kind of worried about, you know, not correcting my heading good enough, paying attention. I don't know. You know, you get you get unexpected winds out there. I mean, remember, it's just a forecast they give you. you know, the boss had told me of all kinds of times that the winds were completely wrong and they were, you know, <laughs> a ways off course when they finally got there. How did that flight go? Was it all good or did you have any kind of issues that popped up? Well, I was fine, but my boss lost his vacuum pump halfway. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was, uh, the forecast for Santa Maria, we were going to get there pretty late at night was for really low clouds and rain and, you know, basically definitely going to have to shoot an approach. And my boss wasn't thrilled about that. So our plan was we met up at the first, the Azores are a chain of islands that stretch about 300 miles long. And we arrived at the first island. He arrived at the first island while it was still light out. And he circled the island and waited for me. And we hooked up. And then he flew with flew on my wing the whole way there. And he his plan was to do a uh, a formation instrument approach. So that was going to be my my first low approach ever in the ocean at night on a ferry flight. So, oh my god. <laughs> Uh, that's crazy. I mean, these stories, like, so when, when airline pilots, when corporate pilots, what we fly and what we think is like something that's like crazy and get your heart pumping, I guarantee you every story I tell you, you'll be like, that's it. What else? <laughs> you know, like, oh, what else happened? <laughs> it's kind of like, wait, you had all your instruments working for that? Yeah. I was in the middle of Africa with no instruments and a hail store. It's like, okay, okay you win. You win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have been lucky enough or unlucky enough to have had just an unbelievable amount of crazy things happened to me over the years and lucky enough to survive. So yeah, I've got to. The people ever kind of call it when you start telling stories, you know how pilots are. They always try to one up each other. We already said that you would win no matter what. I'm sure you've made a lot of people take a shot or chug a beer or whatever it may be based on telling stories. But do they ever just like look at you like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> what are you doing? Why do you do this to yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah, de- they definitely do, especially airline pilots. You know, I've heard how many times back in the day, uh, hey, that's a four-engine ocean. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I've done it in a single many times, but uh, but I kind of tend to agree that it's maybe not the wisest thing to do, but, you know, I just can't stop. <laughs> that's hilarious. How long have you, have you been married this whole time throughout this whole process, or did your wife come in halfway through in the beginning of it? When did she come in? I met her... As I was in flight training, okay, and actually she was my first passenger, which was kind of a few days before I actually had a license. We don't really need to talk. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't hear that. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Can't prove anything. Yeah. It was a different time back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, she's been with me the whole time. You know, we got married in the middle of my fair flying career and uh, it's been super supportive of it. It's really weird. She never seemed to be too concerned. I don't know if I should be, if I should be concerned about that or not. Right. <laughs> She's like, I got a good life insurance plan on you. It's all good. <laughs> when you were, I don't know, I guess like, did she ever, was there ever a point where she wanted you to stop with like, when you come back and you tell her story or she can't get a hold of you for a while, she's like, this is just too much. You need to stop. No, she never did. But I, as as we got married and we started having kids, I kind of didn't tell her all the stories or all the details, um, kind of waited for the book to come out <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't want to have that conversation. I wanted to, 
I guess I was hiding hiding some of the dangers from her for a while just because I wanted to quit on my own terms. And I also didn't want to worry her. I don't need her, you know, sitting at home, drumming her fingers on the kitchen table waiting for me, waiting for my call. Right. No, that's definitely true. It's definitely not good. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure she was worried in her own bout for sure. Um, when you were, so Faring, you have been all over the world, right? Correct. What's the farthest you've gone to deliver a plane? I think Singapore. I've done Singapore a few times. Uh, that's about the the longest. I mean, it's literally the other side of the planet from Wisconsin, so you really can't go any further than that. You know, otherwise you're going the other way. It's sure, sure that way. I mean, I, I mean, Australia was maybe longer distance. When you're looking at these and you're planning these, uh, would you try to fly over as much land as possible, or you're like, well? There's an ocean between us. There's a couple islands. I get a reserve tank of fuel or I get extra fuel put on or what's kind of the flight plan process looking like? Well, most of the time, the, the main concern is money, fuel efficiency, you know, number of landings, you know, airport landing fees are so expensive these days. You really have to kind of plan that out. Um, unfortunately, your safety kind of comes a little second. Now, not to say I don't take that into consideration at all, but most of the time it's you're just going to have to assume everything goes okay and uh, try to get the plane there as fast and as cheap as you can. Yeah, it sounds like the I used to fly single pilot 135, and it sounds just like that. <laughs> but you yeah. probably had a little bit more risks than I did. I was flying over the over the United States and Mexico, where you're flying over the Pacific Ocean. It's a big difference. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I used to fly, there's like a stretch. I used to fly a caravan and I'd fly over, say, like Lake Erie, like east to west, or I'd fly over Lake Michigan. And I'm always like, all right, well, here we go. This is, uh, let's climb a little higher. Let's make sure that we'll be good. You know, we got a, a raft if we need it, like that kind of thing. And you're probably like, you could fly without with your eyes closed and no instruments, no, <laughs> no issues whatsoever. <laughs> That's probably not even a nightmare for you. No, it's actually over the years when I pilots start telling me how dangerous it was flying over Lake Michigan. I used to, I used to put them in their place, but now I just smile and let them go on with their story. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's so funny. Um, all right, I, this is kind of a, a, a situation. So let's say right now you were to get a call to go ferry somewhere. What does this whole process look like from beginning to end? So you get the call. How quick do you need to get to the airplane to deliver it? Um, I know you said it's mainly based on money, so you want to get there as quick as possible, as few stops as possible, kind of go through the whole process, the flight planning process, uh, everything right now, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Well, I actually just got contacted to fly a Baron from Norway to Florida, and I haven't accepted yet, but I'm thinking about it. So basically what I started doing is looking at my route, seeing where, you know, what the range of the plane is, if I need ferry tanks or not. Um, where I'm going to land, start contacting the airports to see what the, the landing fees might be for what fuel prices are. Because fuel prices, as you know, can vary greatly from one airport to another. You know, the big international airports might be really expensive, but, it, you know, right down the road might be some little tiny mom-pop airport that's got fuel for half price. So I'll look at that, um, you know, see what what's the timing with, with the with the customer, you know, when's the plane going to be ready? What's my schedule like? Can I fit it in there? And uh, just get going. You know, it's pretty <laughs> much <laughs> what. Pretty um, much it. When you say you haven't accepted it yet, you're most likely to accept. What do you have like a uh, a list where he's like, all right, well, if this isn't working, I'm not doing it. Do you kind of have like a set non-negotiable list? Like this has to work for me to be able to do this, or is this change based on the mission and the airplane? You know, there's very few of them that I'll 
turned down because of the equipment in the plane. You know, I can bring along, you know, my own personal GPSs for flight, stuff like that. Um, I'm used to stuff breaking on the planes. I like to have a, well, you like to have current annual, but I've flown a lot of planes that supposedly had a quote, quote unquote, annual inspection done. And they've been, turns out they were pretty much junk. Um, you know, these days, mostly I, I, I mostly am accepting planes that a real a plane that I really want to fly something really cool or to a place that I really want to go. Or if I'm just kind of bored and looking for something to do, <laughs> I, I've, I'm turning down most of the twin, the singles these days. I've kind of been there, done that. Don't need to prove anything to anybody anymore. And, you know, the thing that I, I worry most about is stuff that I, that's not my fault. You know, if I get killed because I screwed up, I can accept that. You know, I made the mistake. I pushed the envelope. I went in weather that I knew was a little sketchy. Um, but if I'm flying a plane, a single engine over the Atlantic and some bearing in the crankshaft goes and the plane just, you know, the engine stops, you know, that's not my fault. And I don't want to put myself into a position where, you know, I had no control of the situation. So kind of stopping that stuff. That's good. I think that's a good idea. I think your wife would agree too. Probably your family too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, yeah. um, what have you found the most difficult for flight planning like uh, along the route? Obviously, predicting winds is hard. I'm sure flight has just helped immensely and really changed the game. And probably, I'm guessing the old ferry pilots think that the new ferry pilots aren't real ferry pilots because they have flight and they have all this cool stuff. But what is the like number one most difficult processes of it? process of it? Is it working with uh, regulatory governments? Is it working with FAA, IKO, uh, the different countries? Is it setting up airports, handling, uh, what, whatever it may be? What What's kind of the biggest hiccup and what could uh, go wrong there? Yeah, right now, the, the, the biggest problem is usually customs and export, exporting the airplanes and all the paperwork and overflight permits. And a lot of airports now are requiring handlers. So you've got to contract a handler to basically hold your hand to walk into the building and get your weather report, which is pretty frustrating. See, I've been doing it by, my, by myself for so many years, you know, but they, they want to charge a lot of money to essentially give you no services. But, you know, if they require it, they require it. So that's the, that's the biggest hassle these days. Yeah, the, the, the old old school stuff of Flight planning and winds and weather and all that stuff has gotten so easy with flight. It's almost ridiculous. I mean, it's just like it's magic now, especially like the maps. I mean, I can carry every single map for the entire world in my iPad. I used to go out with a whole cardboard box full of maps and approach blades. Most of them were expired by sometimes years. But, you know, you just never had time to you know order maps from, right. for Africa, you know. Or the the time to even put them all together because I mean from what I heard I'm kind of the newer generation where four flight came out after my private it's like what you had to do in the airlines you had to, it took a couple hours to update those books oh yeah the old jump charts yeah <laughs> and it sounds like you didn't really have the time to do that in route you can't just sit on with no autopilot in a plane where you got to be very you got to sounds like you got to be on all the time so it's not like you can just kind of chill out and relax and you're flying these flights you can't just go start all right I'm gonna do the books now well actually you probably. Could have because you know if the plane's got an autopilot and you've got a nine-hour leg over the ocean. Once you establish your heading, 
Yeah. You're kind of done. You know, you got to watch your instruments for any signs of trouble, but there's not a whole lot you can do except follow your, your flight plan. So yeah, very true. I read a lot of books, listen to, listen to my Walkman, which that shows you how old <laughs> I am at a Walkman and cassette tapes. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. What's that? Eight tracks. <laughs> right. Well, Hey, let's take a break real quick. I will get, uh, we'll get right back into it in a second. All right. So first off, I'll just welcome back. Uh, sorry for the quick break, but um, we have uh, one question I really wanted to ask was, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening right now is, do you have a list or kind of like WTF moments? You're like, man, that was dumb. What, what's kind of the dumbest things you've done when you've been ferrying? Because you, you mentioned before that the one thing you can't live with is if you are the one that makes the mistake. So right, do you have any instances where you have made those mistakes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh... Got kind of a long list there. Mostly it's <laughs> pushing bad weather situations, flying into thunderstorms, and uh, pushing an icing situation. Uh, <laughs> probably the dumbest thing was I was ferrying a Bonanza from St. John's to Paris one time. Unusual strong winds allowed allow me to skip the Azores and go straight to Paris. And about four hours into the flight, I turned on the ferry tank to push the ferry fuel up to the wings and discovered that the ferry tank wasn't working. And what was really dumb about that is I really should have checked that while I was still within range of Canada. So I could have turned around and gone back, but I was already past the point of no return and I really needed to get that gas. And it was a pretty bad situation. What'd you have to do to get the gas? Cause obviously in that moment, it's like, there's, you can't turn, like you said, you can't turn around. You can't keep going. You're running out of gas. You're kind of in this like, WTF moment. Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of sat there and analyzed the situation. I took the cap off the fuel tank and found out that the rammer tube that was pressurizing the tank wasn't working. Uh, whether the the vent tube was or the rammer tube was blocked or it shifted didn't matter. I had to somehow pressurize the tank. And so sat and thought about it for a little bit and just started blowing on that hose like you'd blow up an air mattress. And it worked. But it worked really, really slow. And so basically, I had to spend an entire night blowing into that hose to move that fuel out to the wings to make it to Paris. <laughs> How long do you think that took? A couple of hours? That was about, oh no, that was uh, six, seven hours. Oh it my was, gosh. It's a long, long time. And it was extremely difficult because, number one, I hadn't had any sleep. I decided to go straight through from, from Maine. And I was at 15,000 feet with no oxygen because I needed to be up there for the, uh, for the winds aloft. So hyperventilating into that tank for many hours at night at 15,000 feet. A lot of gas fumes in there, too. I was, uh, I was pretty loopy. I think they wrote a couple of books on uh, not being in that situation. <laughs> I think, yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. There's a couple of mistakes going on there. But, uh, <laughs> hey, life of a ferry pilot, right? Yeah, pretty, do what you got to do. Yeah, let's hope the FA is not listening to this right now and be like, oh, yeah, what's his address? Yeah, we'll give him a call real rude. quick. You can't prove anything. That's true. Yeah, this is this is all fake. This is all stories. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had any run ins with FA? Have they been like waiting for you to land? I mean, obviously, you, you had a TV show there for a little bit. So I'm sure that kind of brought some awareness up to, to ferry flying. Or is the FA kind of like, well, we know you got to do it. Good luck. Just don't make a news story. Uh, the FAAs kind of left us alone for the most part. They've gotten really picky about the ferry tanks these days and actually made it almost impossible to use ferry tanks because um, they, they're trying to make things safer you know, for our own good. So now we don't use ferry tanks and we have to go the northern route up to Greenland and Iceland with no ferry tanks and limited reserves. So 
thanks for helping, guys. <laughs> uh, the funniest one was probably uh, during the TV show, we were flying a, a Cirrus from Germany to Vegas, and we'd had some problems with the plane, with the with the, the audio on our the cameras that were recording us. And we aborted three different takeoffs, or not takeoffs, trips to England. And when we finally got there, the uh, British Secret Service was waiting for us because they thought there was something fishy going on that we were trying to get around stuff. And <laughs> they had their guns drawn and everything and wanted to see, see everything. And uh, that was kind of funny. That is funny. Talking about that, that brings up a good point. Talking about this TV show, how does this even happen? Did someone reach out to you or are you like kind of like a folklore? We're like, oh, you want a good TV show? Go to Carrie, you know, like Ferry and Planes. <laughs> or is this just kind of right place, right time? It worked out. What was the origin of the TV show? You know, it was kind of right place, right time. I bought a, a Beach Queen here for my personal plane. I always wanted to get a, get another twin so I could have a little extra safety and the Queen Air was kind of a cool plane to get. And I flew it to Oshkosh the first year and I met a guy who said, Hey, you should get on beach talk. It's this Beechcraft owners chat room thing. And so the next, when I got back, I got on that and almost the first day there was an ad discovery channel looking for ferry pilots. And I said, huh, I'm one of those. And I sent them an email and they contacted me. We did a little Skype interview and, wasn't long after that, I was flying in Navajo to Brazil. Yeah, they realized they hit the jackpot. <laughs> You're probably telling <laughs> well, them the stories. While, yeah. yeah. When you were doing the interview and they're talking about stories where they're kind of just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be gold. We can't wait for this. <laughs> you know, actually, I thought I screwed up the interview. I was wooden. I wasn't funny. They, you know, I was just I hung up and I told my wife, I blew that, that they're never going to call me back. I, I was not energetic at all. And they actually didn't. They had somebody else, but they had somebody quit for that Navajo trip. And they literally called me and says, can you, can you be in Florida the day after tomorrow and start filming this TV show? I said, oh my gosh, sure. <laughs> drop everything and. What did the what did the filming of the TV show look like? Uh, I mean, was it? Uh, did you have a crew? Did you? They just give you a bunch of cameras? Or they? Kind of, did you have a bunch of freedom? Like, all right, this is your trip. Plan as normal. We're just going to record it. Um, I guess one thing too to ask is, was anything fabricated? Did they try to make things look worse than it really was? Because I mean, if everything goes smoothly, it's not good TV. You know, no one's going to want to watch. So, what, what do you think about those? Well, I, the entire process was crazy from start to finish. I mean, I, the first morning, I met my co-pilot, Stu, who I'd never met before, and the camera crew. And day one, they literally took us, we met each other, went out to the airport. I'd never even been in a Navajo before. And they said, okay, we're gonna do air-to-air work. And here's this guy with a helicopter, the big geosynchronized camera on it. We're gonna go out over the, go fl- spend the day fl- flying doing air-to-air shots. And, cause the camera, the camera can't, ship can't follow you on the trip. So we fly over the ocean, we fly over what we would hopefully look like jungle and the the director and the camera ship would tell me what to do up and down. And that was kind of a nerve wracking day. I've got kind of low over the ocean a few times, (laughs) but uh, the the whole trip with the the film, the show was really an exercise in patience because everything takes twice as long. You know, if you're going to walk across the ramp, you have to, the the camera will say, stop, hang on. And he goes running ahead of you and you guys stand there waiting and you know, okay, go. And then you start walking and try to act natural. And so everything's like that. 
Um, How do I act natural? You just wanted me to stop and walk. Right, like, I'm right. not walking. What do I do with my hands? Like, <laughs> yeah, they fill the fill fill a plane full of cameras and stuff. And one of the hardest things to do was was act. And see, we didn't have to always act, but they wouldn't always be filming. And you'd say something that the cameraman found really interesting, where he goes, "Hey, wait, hang on." You'd have a conversation, and then he'd turn the camera on and say, "Okay, now have that whole conversation again." Like the first time, it's just you talking. Second yeah. time, now act as yourself, and that took some practice. Did but, so? You yeah. said like the main camera crew didn't come with you on the on the actual trip itself, right? Did you have one camera guy with you? Yeah, we we always had a cameraman, at least one with us. Almost all the planes could only ha- hold one. Uh, the first, the first small plane we had, the cameraman brought way too much stuff, and he was kind of upset when we told us it's a bonanza; it won't carry all this gear. It's, you got to knock this down a bit. So, yeah, they would always come with us. Um, you'd asked about fabricating stuff. Ninety-nine percent of the stuff on that that show was a hundred percent accurate. Um, the only thing was on the very first trip, I was flying the Navajo over the over the Amazon rainforest and they wanted me to pretend I was running really low on fuel getting to uh, the next airport. And I argued for two days about that one with the production company. It's like, it's going to make me look like an idiot. I know. <laughs> I'm not going to get a job after this. You know that, right? right? It was like, well, how do you run it? And also, but I lost that battle. And so if you're watching that episode when we're like the Gas gauges are bouncing on empty, and I request priority landing. Dun dun dun! It's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably was a good episode, though. I'm sure a lot of people liked it. It was. Yeah. Well, what they found is the problem was most TV shows, nothing happens. So most of these reality shows, yeah, so they have to make mountains out of molehills. Mm-hmm. And what they found when they're filming us is they had too much stuff. I mean, they ended up cutting so much real adventure because they just couldn't fit it all in every episode. Right. They were just like, you don't have to make up anything. This is crazy. Yeah. That's well, what I was saying. So, they, they probably thought they hit the gold mine with you guys. They're like, oh my gosh, we have so much content. <laughs> mm-hmm. sure. the, wait, so you had this cameraman. Do you think this cameraman fully knew what he was signing up for? Did they fully understand like the, the dangers that came with ferrying small planes across the, the ocean, uh, across different countries, or was it kind of a learning experience with them when they're going? Oh, absolutely not. They had no idea what they're getting themselves into. <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> After a couple of days, we sat down and talked. It's like, you do realize how dangerous this is yeah. and why we're taking this serious, right? Did they ever have any moments where like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. I turn around or they ever freak out at all and you kind of had to expend more energy on, on them than necessarily the situation? There was a couple. There was a couple times. We were sitting in um, Iceland trying to get to Greenland and we'd had a few days of bad weather and we finally had a Finally had a window, and the one cameraman wasn't uh, wasn't real thrilled about making that trip, but we we convinced him. Yeah, it's like uh, it's your job. So yeah. <laughs> sorry, man. Like, well, we're, we're going. You can be in the plane or not. Yeah, but I, it's a real trip, and I've got a real customer waiting. So that was gonna be my next question. So this was actual your trip. So they would use once you ever you had a customer, like everything was real in that aspect. It wasn't ever like all right, we found this one eighty two. Well, you can go fly it around, pretend we're doing it here. It was a hundred percent. Uh, a ferry flight for you. Yep. They were all real trips. Um, They're mostly through CB aviation. Um, Corey Benson out of uh, Ogden, Utah, that he had started his aviation company and that he found most of the trips. So we did a couple for some other guys, but yeah, they were all real trips. 
Uh, that's crazy. Uh, did they have any kind of insurance requirements for uh, the cameraman? Like, did they have to be on a mis- uh, multi-engine? Did they have to be on a certain amount of airplane? Or was it all just, uh, whatever you do, we're coming with you? Yeah, I don't think the cameraman had any, there were any issues there. You know, they, they had to, <laughs> I mean, the problem they had was actually finding planes for these trips because some owners didn't want their planes filmed and you know it's not like there's thousands of ferry flights every year going all over the place you know and a lot of them were the same place so they didn't want to re- redo routes so when we found one uh cameraman went along whether they liked it or not <laughs> sounds like these cameramen uh probably need to get paid a little bit more especially since they didn't know what they're signing up for fully right yeah yeah they were crammed in the back of the cockpit with all the gear sometimes it wasn't real comfortable for them if you had the opportunity, I know you, the TV show ha- has run its course, right? That's not a thing anymore? Correct. All right. If you were the, had the same opportunity, you could go back in time, would you say yes again? Do you think it was beneficial for your career? Do you think it was beneficial uh, a portrayal of you as a pilot? Or would you say no? Oh, I'd definitely do it again. Um, I had a blast doing it. It was very frustrating at times. And... You know, sometimes I didn't come off looking the best because like right away, the producer told me, said, here's the deal. The audience either has to love you or hate you. Just don't be boring. And so I immediately picked jerk. I, I, I dibs on being the jerk. <laughs> so there's a lot of people like, you're such a, you know, a yeah. everything. Like including my daughter. My daughter got to go with me on one of the one of the flights from um, Uruguay to South Carolina. And we argued a lot on the on the on the trip because you can't be boring. So that's so funny. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the worst thing they want is silence and, and nothing going on. And I'm sure that's what most fairy flights are. It's just you like, all right, we're here. Uh, I'm either going to sing or I'm going to sleep or read like nothing really interesting happens until something interesting happens. If that makes sense. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. I, we were taken off from Grenada and my daughter was flying a beautiful day. And Right after takeoff, I'm taking pictures out the left side of the plane, and I, I look over, and she's flying with one hand, taking pictures with her phone with the other, and she's doing a really good job. And I, at first, I was up, pretty proud of her. I said, oh, wait, 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 TV show. Grab the controls. Like, I have the controls. Don't you ever take pic- pictures while you're flying. You're going to concentrate, Bob. But you do it all the time, Dad. Yeah, well, when you have 7,000 hours and 30 years of experience, you have blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So, that's so funny and scene yeah so. and cut did you get that we're good all right cool all right you can yeah, go back yeah. and do that now <laughs> sorry claire didn't mean to yell at you that's funny did uh her friends watch the show at all did uh what did your local fair not local family what did your kind of your friends your family what did they all think of the tv show did they love it yeah they did they uh especially the gang at the skydiving school i own they thought it was hilarious they'd put on little snippets and you know we all give each other a bunch of grief about stuff and so yeah they're like they <laughs> they teased me relentlessly about being uh, the Carrie McCauley show starring me, Carrie McCauley. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, did you find yourself getting noticed at airports when you'd go like a uh, ferry a plane? Oh, sure. I get mobbed by fan all the time. Yeah. Singular fan. <laughs> <laughs> Aviation. Yeah, once all night. It's not yeah. a ton. Overseas more. You know, in the United States, the, the, Discovery Channel didn't pick it up here, so it was on the Smithsonian Channel, so okay. it wasn't quite as popular. But in Canada and Europe, I get uh, recognized fairly frequently. That's pretty funny. It's funny. Aviation fame is, is a lot different than uh, normal fame. So some people that think they're famous in aviation, it's like, oh, I mean, not really. <laughs> it's a bunch of old dudes, right? <laughs> yeah. You get noticed at Oshkosh, or, yeah. you know, but that's 
Yeah, yeah. Oshkosh, maybe sun and fun every once in a while. Yep. But yeah, yep. that's that's the that's the end of that. Back to being normal and humble, which is a good thing, you know? It's nice being just yeah. a normal person, not being recognized. Well, you know, when I when I first started, I was like, my biggest fear was to be famous without the money, you know, to have people bug you all the time, but not have, you know, made a ton of money doing it. So it was like, I just got just a little bit of each and that, that was good. Yeah. Win-win. You tasted both yeah. worlds and you're, and you're happy right. with both. <laughs> yep. Did you find, um, faring with the TV show to drain more of your energy than faring without it? Was it easier, um, just doing it by yourself and knowing like you're the solo guy, you know what you're doing. It's only you at risk. Uh, but when you add more bodies in there and you add kind of the stress of a TV show, the stress of the decisions, not just affecting you, but now you have two other, or you have one other person, two other people with two other lives to worry about. Did you find that more draining? Oh God. Yeah. The, uh, TV show is 10 times harder than going by yourself. It was like a trip that would normally take a week, probably took a month. You know, when it's all said and done and every single, you know, you could only do typically one leg a day versus two or three. Everything was, you know, just so much harder. Um, I learned it. I, I adapted it easier because I'd been free flying longer. So I'd learned patience. But my the guy that I flew with a lot, Stu, he he would get pretty upset with how things are going. I say, yeah, chill out, man. <laughs> you being mad isn't going to help anything go any faster. You know, we just got to. Keep swinging. Sooner or later, we'll get her done. Yeah, no, right. Did you, when you had the idea to write this book, was this kind of people, you know how everyone goes, you should write a book. You know, you start telling all these stories. Uh, when you're actually living these stories, you're like, man, I can't wait to write my book. I can't wait to tell all these stories. Kind of, where did the book come from? Uh, kind of a combination. You know, when I was very flying, I kept as much of a journal as I could, but I was really bad at it. I tried you know, using a tape recorder, putting stuff down in my logbook. But, you know, when you get done flying at the end of a 14-hour day, you just want to go to bed. So luckily, I have a pretty good memory for a lot of the details of what happened. But, yeah, when I came back, you know, you're telling stories around the bonfire, all the skydivers, and everybody said, you should write a book. I was like, yeah, I kind of should. And I really wrote it at first just to get the stories down so I wouldn't forget them and so I could – not bore my kids in person. I could read about it <laughs> later. You would have been the perfect YouTuber back in the day if they would have had that. Oh, yeah. Get a little like lifestyle <laughs> vlog channel going on <laughs> with Carrie no, Farron no. Plains. Oh, we're here in uh, Mexico. We lost both their engines. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, it would have been pretty popular. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's not too late, you know, get a little no. vlog channel going on YouTube. It's. Uh, I heard that's uh, some good stuff going on over there. I've thought about it. It yeah. seems like a lot of work, though. Oh, it's we'll a ton see. of work. Yeah. Maybe you can convince some of the, the Discovery Channel people or some Sony Channel to come out and help you out. <laughs> yeah. So talk about the book. Um, what's the book called? Uh, uh, how can someone buy the book? What's your favorite part of writing the book? Uh, tell me some stories from the book. Uh, kind of sell it a little bit. Well, the book's called Fairy Pilot. Go Real figure. imaginative title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, available on Amazon right now. You can get it to either paperback or Kindle. I'll be recording the audiobook here in uh, another month or so when I, the skydiving ski season kind of winds down. It's doing really well. It was the number one bestseller on Amazon in the aviation category and number one new release. So pretty happy with that. I'm actually kind of surprised at how well it's been received. A lot of the skydivers have kind of given me this backhanded compliment saying, so did you just tell these stories to a professional writer and he wrote them down? I said, 
So you think the writing is good and you didn't think I had it in me. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Duly noted. Thank you. No offense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a collection of just the the flying stories. It kind of goes through my early, the early career of ferry flying, the no GPS stuff. Um, some of this guy having, you know, my, you know, my flight training growing up, I get into it really fast. You know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about growing up and my first job at Burger King and stuff like that. I, you know, I'm, I read a lot of aviation memoirs and one of the things that always bugs me is how much not flying is in them. You know, I want to just, I want to hear about flying stories and that, so that's what mostly this is filled with. Um, I've got, you know, the, First flight and the stuff with Pete when he lost his Jeep, his lost his vacuum pump, and then it's almost hitting a mountain in Switzerland at night in a snowstorm, and like I said, losing my fuel system, losing my electrics, my uh, alternator over the Sahara at night, and having to fly eight hours by flashlight, uh, robbing a bank in Spain. Uh, we don't need to go into that. But Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I robbed a bank in Spain. Uh, You'll have to read the book to figure it out. For the, for the TV show or for... No, 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 for real. All right. Just because you're like, hey, I've, I've always wanted to rob a bank. Why not just do it in Spain? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It, it wasn't classic robbery. It's kind of withdrawing money that somebody had uh, stolen my identity and stole some money from friends of ours and <laughs> getting it back. But uh, it was pretty scary little... Little adventure there. Um, All right, you got to leave some for the book, right? Can't give everything away. Smuggling parts. We were kind of a smuggler too back in the day. We didn't uh, always pay customs and duty on stuff we brought into the country. No drugs, never drugs. Yeah, yeah. So you say you know, don't ever incriminate yourself on a podcast. You know, it's number one. (laughs) It's all fabricated. It's it's yeah. I'm a I'm an actor. I was on a TV show. Nothing's true. Yeah, Yeah. right. right. (laughs) Got to embellish it. That's crazy. It's all true. I've even had a couple of people that say, that, are these all real stories? I'm like, yeah, you can ask my wife. She she heard all the stories over for years. So. I was going to say, did your wife like find anything out about you? It's like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like, you did what? Like, I don't I might have to rethink uh, yeah, this. There's some of the stories that she hadn't heard the whole, the whole thing about. Um, there's a meeting a girl in Africa that uh, she didn't hear the whole story about until the book came out. And it was all very, very innocent, but uh <laughs> You know, I was kind of scared writing the book because, you know, when you write a book like this, you really lay your your whole life out for everyone to see. And it, it didn't bother me to to put this out for the strangers, but all my friends and coworkers and people that I live with all the time are going to read it. And it's like, you know, I never know how it's going to be received. Like, they're going to be like, man, you're an idiot. Why yeah. did you do that? Well, it's funny you bring that up because I think it goes when, when you start anything new like that, when you put yourself out there, you really fear what the closest people to you will think. And maybe not even the close, maybe the people you went to high school with, the people that judge you the most that you don't talk to as much, but you're just like Facebook friends and, and what they think. Like, oh, here goes Carrie writing a book. He thinks he lives this great life. We should read it. And then uh, it, it can it can deter people from creating. And it's great that you push through that because that's, that's difficult to do. And you, it's been great. And I'm sure it's helping people and entertaining people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my biggest fear when releasing the book was if it was my writing. You know, I, I I knew the stories were great because everybody told me, and I you know I know a good story when I hear one. I'm like, these are good stories; they're entertaining. But you know, you worry that people are like, man, you write like a third grader. But uh, <laughs> actually, seem to seem to really like it. So they did a good job. So you ask for feedback, it. like, what do you take away from the book? It's like, well, it was one constant paragraph with no punctuation. <laughs> Well, it, you know, there was a, this took me 10 years because there was a lot of that, you know, the first, the first few drafts were not awesome. And, uh, actually I had some people helping me edit a bit. And one guy said, well, it's, 
you know, it wasn't flowery. You know, they tried to change my style of writing, you know, and they tried to make it more grammatically correct and like it's an English term paper. And my dad said, you're just squeezing all the juice out of it. Just go back to your original drafts and use that. And it's just me telling stories. All the people that know me say it's it's like sitting around the bonfire with a beer listening to you tell a story. It's, it's much easier to read that way. It's more fun, too. More fun. Yeah. Who cares about grammar? No one needs a grammar police in their life, right? Right. I just scattered commas yeah. throughout the page randomly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, what was your main goal with the book? Uh, kind of when you, when you, the first thought of you writing the book, what was your goal? Did you want to inspire other people to be ferry pilots? Did you want to entertain? You just want to be able to share your story. Uh, and has your goal from when you first decided to write the book changed from now? You know, the first, the, my main goal was just to get the stories down so they wouldn't disappear. You know, I figured I'm going to get older and I'm going to forget. And even writing the book, I would start th- going back through my logbook. I go, oh, yeah, I totally forgot about that. You know, because when you're ferry flying, every trip is just filled with hundreds of little mini adventures and crazy instances. And after a while, there's so many of them, they get lost. And some, you know, something would happen to me that would be, anyone else's favorite story they told for 30 years. And I was just like, whatever, it's, that's, that's nothing. You should have heard this, what happened to me this other time. So mostly it was just getting the stories down so I wouldn't forget them. Was there one story that you're afraid to tell at all? Or were you very clear that you had to tell every single story? No, I pretty much told them all, you know, it's, I'm, I'm pretty honest about what I did in the book. And I, I fully fess up when that was pretty stupid and I shouldn't have done that. And I learned from that because I made a lot of mistakes along the way, you know. I'm I'm kind of reckless, so <laughs> not always great to be honest. reckless in an airplane, but it looks like your luck yeah. has prevailed, so that's good. Yeah. Did you ever there's been a a couple times, you know, where you just feel like you've been really lucky. Maybe it's like uh you you thought you were going to run out of fuel, but you didn't run out of fuel. Uh, it was supposed to be low IFR and you didn't think you'd make it in. Fuel might have been tight, you had oil issues, but luck was always on your side. Did you ever feel like or did you ever cancel a trip just because you thought man, I've had too much good luck. Like I'm bound to lose out. Like I need to make at least one smart decision where you're always like, nope, let's go. Let's do this. Yeah. Like I said, I have no, can't say no itis. I, I make, I make a lot of bad decisions, even sitting at home on my couch saying, sure, I'll go do that. Uh, I just usually go for it. <laughs> you figure it out. It's worked out for you figure for the last couple of years. You'll be all right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's kind of, one of the things I love in life is challenges and I won't say near death experiences, but I, I like to be out there. I like to really push it. You know, I, I backcountry ski, you know, and I go up in avalanche conditions. I don't seek out avalanche conditions, but I don't let it scare me away. You know, I scuba dive. I like to go deep. I skydive. I like to go high and I ferry fly crappy airplanes over the ocean. You know, just, I love being put in challenging situations. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Long Came Polly? No. Okay. You are just like the guy. So Ben Stiller is an insurance risk evaluator. And there's this Australian guy that like base jumps. He does all this crazy stuff. And he is tasked with being the person to figure out if they can insure him. He's a super rich guy (laughs) and all this. And I feel like you are that guy. They're like, we can't insure you. (laughs) It's not possible. (laughs) yeah, I, I have been denied life insurance. So yeah. I, I, I would be willing to bet. <laughs> yeah. They we got a couple. What for a living? Like, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Especially after yeah. read the book. They're like, uh, sorry, dude. And there's no way. <laughs> and they pretty much go, just one of these four things disqualifies you. Yeah. So. 
Like, all, right. really, all four is a big no. It's like, we're impressed, yeah. but no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a couple more questions and we'll go to the rapid fire. Then I'll let you go. Um, have you ever truly been up in the air and been like, this is it. I'm going to die. Briefly, when I got struck by lightning in a 206 over the middle of the Atlantic, it, uh, I was just flying along in a nice, relatively nice day. We flew into some innocent cloud and a lightning bolt hit the, hit the prop. It was a huge Christmas tree wreath of fire on the prop and it was a massive explosion. I'm sitting right in front of 180 gallons of fuel. And for a second there, I, I thought that was it, but it didn't blow. <laughs> what do you, do you just dumb luck? Uh, did you start praying? What did you kind of attribute that to? It's kind of just dumb luck. Cause I mean, the, when we landed or when I landed the, uh, there's a chunk of chunk burned off the prop where it hit. There was a big half dollar size hole in the one wing root and one of the tires, the, the, the rim was actually melted and bubbled like you'd taken an arc welder to it and put the, the tire didn't blow. I mean, all that, all that electricity shooting into and then out of the airplane and it didn't set off the fuel. And I, that was just dumb, dumb luck, I think. Did you land, uh, drink a couple of beers, kiss the ground when you land? Or you're like, oh, all right, we'll just fix it. We'll go tomorrow. <laughs> I had to find a file to file the prop down. <laughs> Jeez. So I wasn't done yet. I still had to get the plane to Switzerland. So that's crazy. Yeah. What's going through your mind going back in a plane or even just going in a plane that you don't a hundred percent trust because your mind is always going to be thinking of the worst thing possible. Or are you pretty, pretty good at now at being like, Oh, I'll just deal with situations when they come up. You know, you can only be so scared for so long in, you know, in every flight, you know, you take off, it's like, okay, is this going to keep working? And you watch the engine, so it's really carefully and listen. But, you know, after a while, after an hour or so, you just can't stay in a heightened sense of, you know, you know, terror or whatever you want to call it, not terror, but. Well, know. I know what you mean. Yeah. The, the, if you're, if you're scared for a prolonged period of time and it's going to drain more of your energy and you might not be able to react the way that you need to. Now that's easier said than done telling yourself not to be scared, but. Yeah. That's definitely a case. Well, I learned I learned early on that if you've got time to panic, you've got time to do something more productive. You know, there's just no sense in freaking out, just deal with the situation and keep swinging. Is that something that you learned as your life progressed as a ferry pilot or did you kind of go into that right away? You know, I think I learned that before I even started flying. I, you know, growing up, I'd always kind of put myself in as dangerous situations as I could find. Um, I'd actually told my mom when I was probably 17 that if I wasn't dead by the time I was 37, I don't know where I came up with that number. Um, <laughs> I, really, if I wasn't dead by the time I was 37, I would have been disappointed with the way I'd lived my life. Cause I thought back then that anybody who rock climbs and skis and scuba dives and skydives and does all this cool stuff will surely get killed. But as I went along, I realized if you get killed doing this stuff, it doesn't make you a hero. It makes you an idiot. It makes you bad at it. You're not supposed to get killed skydiving. You're supposed to be successful at it and get to the ground and have some beers that night, not have your friends crying over you. So. I'm glad you came to that realization. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure your mom was pumped to hear you say in 20 years, I'm like, I want to be dead. <laughs> yeah, be she was, she, she thought, she literally thought I had a death wish for a long time. She was quite worried about me for many years, but then I just kept 
not dying. So <laughs> has this mentality passed on to your kids or your kids a little bit more uh, care careful, I guess I should say, than what you are? Uh, no, they're pretty much exactly like me. Yeah. Does that they're terrify you average. seeing huh? that in your children? Or do you know that it's just kind of like a, a way of life and there's nothing you can do about it? You know, I'm really proud of them. They're, I, I brought them up kind of to be that way, not really on purpose. Um, we decided to not let them fly or skydive until they're out of school because we wanted to have, them have a reasonably normal life growing up. But I always pushed them into as dangerous and challenging situations as I could from an early age to make to get them into that mindset that they don't have to panic when something happens, that they can be, they can get through these things and have the skills. And I've really seen that. They're both phenomenal skydivers. Uh, they both have worked for me this summer. They're doing great jobs. They're great skiers, great everything. And they've just grown up uh, fantastic. My son's actually a Blackhawk medevac crew chief in my old unit. So basically did the same thing, even in, even with some of the guys I was still in with. So. No way. That's got to be so cool. I bet that's a proud dad moment right there. Yeah, that for sure. And unfortunately, they're both better skydivers than me right now, which is kind of yeah. Hurts the ego a little bit. Yeah, they're they make fun of me quite a bit. That's so, funny. Come on, on, old man, let's go. <laughs> exactly. That is exactly what they do. I do the same thing to my dad, so I get it. <laughs> um yeah, I mean it's important to I, I don't have any kids yet, but I imagine it's important to put your kids in situations where they have to kind of be uncomfortable because I feel like that is definitely a skill that can be learned how to uh, how to handle adversity. I played how to handle adversity. I played football and I was a quarterback, so there's a lot of times when when things were just chaotic and chaos and and being a pilot, you you learn those things as you grow up as a pilot and I was able to learn kind of quick decision-making skills and evaluation really quick in, in, in an instant and I think that definitely helps you later on in life because uh, you kind of can take a second to sit there and be like, all right, we'll be good. I know how to do this. I've been in this situation before. So I think that's a good thing for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's hard to do. I guarantee you it's like, can't be easy to put your kid in a bad situation, but like figure it out. You're on your own. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like learning anything. Um, when you start young, you pick it up and you're just so much better later in life. I mean, I teach a lot of people how to skydive and I get a lot of young people that didn't grow up that way. They did grow up in the bubble, you know, with where everything was super safe. And I have to teach them how to react to emergency skydiving situations. And sometimes they're not good at that. You know, they they get a little freaked out. I'm like you can't freak out. Freaking out doesn't help. You've got to, you got to solve the problem and you only got a couple seconds. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like Sully. It's like uh, when they lost both engines, they each had that, what was it? Five, 10 seconds of uh, just like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. You need to shorten that five, 10 seconds of, oh my gosh, this is happening to me. So you give yourself a better chance of surviving. Exactly. Which is easier said than done. So <laughs> definitely, <Yeah. laughs> you, you really need to grow up doing that to, yeah. be, to, to cut that down to two seconds. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Or one second or whatever, right. shorter maybe. Um, yep. Looking back on your career, you know, you've obviously wanted to live kind of this, uh, this crazy life. I mean, I say crazy because it's crazy. What I did, you might say it's completely normal, which is, is totally fine. And I'm not judging you in any way. It's just, uh, would, would you change anything? Are you happy with how everything is gone? Uh, would you look at your life and wish like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done those flights or I wouldn't do this again. Or would you look back and be like, I should have done more. I should have done this. I should have done that. You know, like everybody, you always look back at parts, parts of your life and say, well, you know, maybe I should have done this or maybe I should have done that. You know, for, for a long time, I wished, I don't know how I got off the, got off the air force track. I thought I was on, 
But I think it was all for a reason. You know, I, I wouldn't change anything now. I mean, I love owning a skydiving school. I love working with my kids. I love ferry flying. I love flying jets. I do. I really, really happy with where I am right now. And, you know, some of my friends who stayed in the army became helicopter pilots, did 30 years. You know, they're now medevac pilots and doing stuff. And I still hang out with them a lot. But I realized, you know, I could my life could have gone completely different. And it probably still would have been I still would have loved it. But being able to do, you know, the ferry flying thing, that's just unique. I mean, hardly anybody has ever, you know, gets to do that. And I've gone everywhere and done everything with it. It's led me, you know, to all these great adventures and I wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. This might be a dumb question, but I feel like people would want to know or might you don't have to answer if you want to, but is there good money in being a ferry pilot or, or a ferry pilot or is it kind of uh you kind of just do it for the adventure? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's kind of backwards. The small stuff that's really dangerous, the small single engine stuff doesn't really pay all that great. The jet, the nice jets, pay that aren't dangerous at all or super easy. They actually pay pretty good. Um, but the, I did the small stuff, and I still kind of do the small stuff for the adventure. I mean, the money's okay, but it's the adventure is what I what I'm there for. That's fun, yeah, for your YouTube channel. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, cool. I have a couple rapid fire questions for you. This is just going to be the, uh, the some aviation centric questions, and you just answer the first and quickest thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. What is your favorite airplane you've ever flown? I think that's got to be the Aerostar, Piper Aerostar. Least Super favorite fast. airplane. Least favorite airplane, Arrow. Okay. Any reason why on the Arrow? Slow. <laughs> Slow <laughs> and a piece of junk. <laughs> Was this that specific arrow that was a piece of junk, or you just clump all arrows as a piece of junk together? Uh, I mean, they're okay, but it's just, it was like, nah. It ferried it over, ferried it to Italy, and it was like, the whole trip was just, this is not a good plane. <laughs> What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? Ever seen? Probably, a, probably the Beaver I used to fly skydivers with. It was just the rattiest looking piece of junk in the world, but I loved it to death. <laughs> what is the most beautiful airplane you've ever seen? Uh, probably a Citation 650 that I like charter with. There you go. So you do normal charter flights too? Yep. Are those yep. boring for you though? You're just like, uh <laughs> You know, I I like takeoff and landing and <laughs> shooting the approaches. Yeah, the, 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 the in-between part is, you know, it's kind of like you're sitting in the hangar, but... They have, we have internet now, so you can sit on Facebook or Craigslist. So it's, you're like, wake so. me up when something goes wrong. I'm just going to pretty sleep. much. <laughs> it's just it's like cheating. Yeah, that's forty eight thousand feet. Uh, do you have one airplane that you're just like, I will never fly this airplane again, other than the Arrow? Other than the Arrow, um, a particular type, not really. Um, I would never fly that three ten <laughs> that I flew from Egypt again, <laughs> even if they fix it. <laughs> do you do you uh check back on those planes that you've flown do you like look at them to make sure they're still flying make sure they haven't crashed or anything or is it once you deliver it they're out of your mind out of sight you know a couple times i've delivered planes to people that i wondered if they're still alive in that plane like that aerostar i delivered to some guys in cyprus and they had really no business owning that airplane it was way too much for them and uh so i've checked back over the years to see if it's still there and it's still flying but oh, still most kicking. time i just let it go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably the best route, right? Yeah. All right. Here's a couple more. What is something you wish you knew before you became a ferry pilot? 
Ah, boy. I wish I knew how to speak French or Spanish. That would have helped you out a lot? Sometimes, yeah. Particularly when you robbed a... I learned German in high school, and that is only useful in Germany. And even then, they all speak English, so... I was about to say, uh, learning Spanish might have helped you when you robbed a bank, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> it really would have. Yeah, uh-oh. <laughs> All right, here's one. Uh, who in the, I'm guessing you've met a lot, but who is one person in the industry that you would like to meet the most? Uh, it could be someone from the past. It could be someone that's passed on now. It could be someone uh, right now. Is there is there anyone that comes to mind? Chuck Yeager. And actually, I got into an elevator with him once in, in Minneapolis, and I was too shy to say anything. I didn't even shake his hand. I just like, oh, my God, that's Chuck Yeager. And I just let him walk out the elevator and kick myself like I could at least say hi. Yeah. Dang, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> what is your overall, you have to choose one, what is your favorite thing about aviation? Boy, I would say it's. It's this, uh, the adventure, the freedom, you know, I love going on long trips and just having to figure stuff out on the fly. Would you rather fly an airplane or jump out of an airplane? Boy, that's a tough one. It, it really depends on the plane and what I'm doing. Most of the time it's jump out though. I really like skydiving. What's the hardest approach you've ever flown? Probably into uh, Magadang, Russia with, uh, in the Phenom with Marcio during this flight. They'd, the the uh, ceilings kept getting lower and lower, and we were way past the point of no return. And just before we got there, we found out that the runway lights weren't working. Oh, solid. So that, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. What else could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. It was down to about 100 feet. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. No big deal. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> What's your least favorite country to fly in? Egypt. Is it because it's it's, difficult or language barrier? What would be the the reason? It's just the officials. They're just such a bunch of sticklers for details that don't matter. Egypt, also Lisbon or Portugal too. They're the same thing. They're just they're just tough to deal with. (laughs) All right, and uh, to second that question, what is your favorite country outside, like the United States, or what someone would think? What's the the most beautiful and your favorite country to fly over or in and out of? Boy, that's got to be Greenland. I mean, it's just so beautiful. The southern tip of Greenland is just gorgeous. And I've got some, I, I go there a lot. So I've got some friends at the airport there. And I just, you know, and, and that's one of those dangerous approaches that's, you know, icebergs everywhere and fjords and high winds. It's just, it epitomizes ferry flying and adventure. And I love that. Yeah. Sounds, sounds perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's your favorite airport to land at of all over the world? You could, you can only choose one. What's your favorite? St. Bart's. That sounds that fun. Was, yeah, that was really cool. I got, I got the check out there a few years ago and it's short and downhill and tropical. I love flying in the Caribbean and that one, that place is cool. What about your least favorite airport to land at? Uh, hmm. Well, that's a tough one. We can come back to it if you want. I don't really have a least. <laughs> yeah, that works too. Yeah, I'm sure you've yeah. landed on non-airports that are worse than most airports. So, yeah, yeah, it's just they're all pretty cool. Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? Uh, VFR. 
what is your favorite airport food? Say you have like 30 minutes, uh, you're making a connection flight. What are you going to go get in the food court? <laughs> I'd love to say sticky buns, but I usually probably, <laughs> probably something more substantial, probably a, probably a Big Mac. Would you rather fly over mountains, the beach or cities? Or the ocean. I guess that's something to say for you too, or the ocean. Yeah, or the ocean. Yeah. I like the mountains. Long trips or short trips? Would you rather have one uh, 10 hour trip or would you rather have one uh, or um, 10 takeoff landings in one trip? I like the short trips. I ferried a Super Cub one time from Florida to Minnesota and I thought that was going to be a horrible trip and I loved every second of it. That's fun. That was probably really boring for you though because it was just in the States. <laughs> No, well, there's massive thunderstorms everywhere, and I had to dodge all around those things, but it was cool. The thing had tundra tires on it, and it was like flying a helicopter, so I just kind of bopped around down low, skirting all the bad weather, knowing I could set down just about anywhere. I had a blast. Yeah, there you go. What's the hardest check ride you ever had? Uh, probably the um, type rating and the citation. What is the biggest regret you have in your career? And I know we kind of talked about uh, maybe not continuing your military career. So let's focus mainly on your ferry pilot career. What's your biggest regret? Is there one trip, you, one plane you had the opportunity to fly, but you said no to, or uh, decision-making you made while you're flying? If you could just choose one, what would it be? Hmm. Boy, I can't think of any, any regrets right now. Your uh, seventeen-year-old self would be proud of you then. Yeah, <laughs> maybe stopping. Maybe stopping. I do, I do kind of regret getting out of the army when I did, but I, I'm glad I did. I really needed to. But uh, everything after that, I don't remember. What's any, the any. What's the biggest win of your career? Would it be the first completion of your ferry flight? Would it be uh, the completion of ferrying a very difficult flight? Uh, what's your the biggest win of your career? The TV show, the book, whatever, maybe. I think it was a round the world trip. I got hired to uh, do a few years ago in, uh, in epics. This guy, uh, Pete Zach and, you know, from the from TV show asked me if I wanted to help fly six, six airplanes around the world in this month and a half long trip that on every stop, they uh, found the coolest thing they could do, the nicest places to, to stay and the best food to eat, to eat and getting paid to be on that trip was Amazing. Yeah, uh, sign me up. If they want to do that again, you know who to hit up. <laughs> Let's go. I can fly jets. I can fly planes. Yeah, that's pretty fun. I got you. Just want like a week in Bali with my wife. That's about it. Right. That's right. all I ask. Don't ask much. <laughs> I know. Come on. Yeah. Business class on the way home. You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, if you were to choose a favorite airline, I'm guessing you don't fly on airlines very often. But do you have a favorite airline to to commute on or fly on? No, not really. They're all pretty much the same to me. I haven't yeah. really, I, I have a good time on the airlines. You know, some people hate particular airlines. I get treated well everywhere. Yeah. So no favorites. All right. Well, those are pretty much all the rapid fire questions I have for you. I have one more question before I let you go. It is going to be someone listening to this podcast right now. They're just enthralled with your stories. They've read your book. They've watched all the episodes uh, of your TV show and they want to be just like you. What is some advice uh, or would you deter them for this kind of career? But what is some advice or maybe some reasons not to get into being a ferry pilot that you would tell someone? Well, I definitely encourage them to do it. Um, Ferry pilot is, you know, it's not a great career, but it's definitely a great adventure. And if you can even get one trip over the ocean, I would grab it because you'll never regret it if you make it, of course. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I lied. I do have uh, one more thing, but it's because some, <laughs> some self-promotion. What, uh, where can someone get your book? Uh, where do you want them to, to go purchase it? A website to go to, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, whatever it may be. You can plug it right here. Okay, well, the paperback and ebook are on Amazon. You can go to my website, carriemacaulay.com, and order a signed copy. I'll send you one out and autograph it to you. Put a little note, whatever you want, want on it. My Facebook page is either just Carrie McCauley or Carrie McCauley author. And stay tuned for book two. I'm going to be working on it this winter and should have it up by the spring or summer. Perfect. Well, Carrie, we can debrief a little bit after this, but I really appreciate you reaching out. This has been a lot of fun to talk to you. Uh, your stories are incredible. I'm sure your book is just as good, if not better. Um, yeah, I wish you nothing but the best with book number two, TV shows. I'm sure uh, I'm sure you're probably going to climb Mount Everest eventually too or go to Mars. So I'm sure we'll be seeing and hearing more of you here soon. So uh, I appreciate you coming on. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you and I look forward to following you and uh, keeping in touch and maybe having you on again. All right, great. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks yeah, for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. No problem. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode 140 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please let me know by leaving me a review on iTunes. Send me a message on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot, or you can email me pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed the story with Carrie McCauley. Like I said, it is pretty crazy. Go check out his book. I am looking forward to ordering it and reading it as well because I have a feeling there are some stories he hasn't told me in the podcast that are still in the book. So go check that out. Let me know what you think and uh, let's see if we can get him on again. I think that he has some other stories that you can share on here. So Nation, I hope everyone's having a good day. I hope you guys are staying safe and I hope you're finding time to go fly. I know it's still crazy times out there, but still, I believe it is worth it. So go do it if it's a part of your dream and go enter this crazy career that we call our own. So Aviation, I hope everyone's having a great day. And as always, happy flying.